Well, good morning, everyone. And a happy new year to you all as well, um, not only to the children. And uh, it's good to be here uh, this morning to look at God's Word and to study it just a little bit. We're going to read, first of all, uh, in the continuing series in the book of James. And uh, we're beginning this morning in James chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. So if you want to take a look and find that, James chapter 2, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And it reads like this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, if you've been in church for more than five minutes, you'll recognize that that particular reading and and the book of James in total is quite challenging when it comes to the understanding of the New Testament. And uh, sometimes you wonder if, for example, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James were actually reading from the same hymn sheet at times. But anyway, let's begin to get into this and let's pray before we do so. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we thank you for your grace that you have allowed us to participate in reading and understanding your word so that we might be able to live our lives before you. And so we ask you this morning that you will lead us and guide us, that the spirit of truth would come and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So um, some of the background to what we've just been reading, we, we've uh, in the middle of a kind of intermittent series uh, in the book of James. And uh, throughout the chapters 2 to 5 of the book, there are probably 12 lessons on how to live as a Christian. Uh, lessons which call God's people to a kind of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. These 12 teachings, if you like, um, some people call them wisdom speeches, um, are standalone lessons uh, which teach us how to live as Christians. And so James is not teaching us anything new theologically, but he's pulling out from various parts of the Scripture uh, that we know, uh, teachings of Jesus and even um, parts of the book of Proverbs, perhaps, uh, as well, as he writes this. And one good place to go and, and see a, a balance to this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and so on, from there on. And uh, maybe even Proverbs 1 to 9, there are references to what James is, is saying here. Um, but the, the, the clear indication is that he wants, like Jesus, uh, to teach God's people how they should live. He's calling God's people to live according to uh, the Old Testament Scripture because at that time when he was writing these letters uh, and these letters were being written by him and others, there was no New Testament to refer to, only the letters that were being sent round the churches. And so he is teaching people to live from uh, the Torah, from the Old Testament, and to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, and so on. And he starts the book in, in the early parts of the book, chapter 2 uh, and verse 1 and following, talking about favoritism and love and how we ought not to favor one person over another. And he talks about uh, a rich man and a poor man coming into the same church building and how uh, we might want to somehow give preference to the rich man and uh, allow the poor man just to fend for himself. And so how we tend to favor uh, some people over others because uh, they might have some benefit to us and ignore the needy and the poor because they have no benefit to us, or at least it would seem that way. But James is saying the very opposite uh, of all of that, and he's saying that love, as Jesus defines it, is what we need to aim for and to target in our lives. Uh, he goes on to talk about hearing the Word of God and doing the Word of God as well later on in chapter 1 and 2. And then we come on to this part that we're talking about this morning, chapter 2, uh, the last part of the chapter on genuine faith. What is genuine faith like? And there are many others coming on afterwards which we'll hear about later on how to tame the tongue and how to gain wisdom from God and so on. But let's look at these uh, few verses. The question is, as I alluded to earlier on, what should we do if one part of Scripture seems to say something directly opposite to another part of Scripture? What on earth do we do in that situation? Well, the first thing we need to do is to confess that the Word of God does not contradict itself. And that's important for us to understand right at the outset. The Word of God does not contradict itself, no matter how much it would appear to do so 
in our minds at times and as we read it at times. The important thing for us to realize is that all of Scripture points in the same direction and that uh, if we find it somehow and as we read it cutting across another piece of Scripture, then we need to question our interpretation of what we've just read or the other parts of Scripture that it seems to cut across. And so we need to bring our minds into line with God's Word uh, for, us, for us in these days. When I was a child in church um, many, many years ago, um, I used to hear uh, the gospel being preached. I came from a brethren background, and uh, the gospel was preached every Sunday night, 6.30. Um, we had, well, for those of you who have heard me speak before, you'll realize I went to six services on a Sunday. You think it's tough having two services on a Sunday, but I went as a child to six services every Sunday. And so Sunday was not a day of rest for it by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a busy day and we, we went to church a lot from the morning service through Sunday school, through teaching in the afternoon, to evening gospel services, to after church rallies and all sorts of stuff. And uh, we made our Sunday very, very uh, busy. But the, the, the key uh, to the gospel preaching was, well, all you've got to do is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And that used to worry me and concern me a lot because I used to think, well, I could sit here and kid on that I believe um, and that will be fine. Nobody will ever know um, and I'll be then saved one day. But of course, we know that is not actually the truth. There is truth in what I've just said, but not the whole truth. And whilst the doctrine of salvation is based on belief and faith, there appears to me as I read Scripture, there is more to being a Christian, and hear what I'm saying here, more to being a Christian as opposed to becoming a Christian or being saved or converted than merely just believing something. And uh, so as we move through this, let's try and find a balance to what is being said throughout these verses. Yes, if we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, the Bible teaches that we will be saved. There is no question of that. The gospel, as Tim Keller says uh, and puts it, the gospel does not say you must do better. That's not the message of the gospel. And so we have to be careful that we don't end up teaching or believing another gospel. Uh, Galatians 1.8 is very clear on that. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we have preached to you, let them be under a curse, under God's curse. And Paul is challenging those uh, in the, the Galatian church who were being, um, uh, the, the information given to them was, was, was uh, suggesting that they needed to have more than just a belief in Jesus and more than just Jesus' cross that was going to save them. And so uh, Peter confronted, uh, Paul confronted Peter, should I say, in Galatians 2, uh, because th at that time they were saying that circumcision was necessary as well uh, for salvation. And Paul confronts Peter and says, uh-uh, uh, we, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So don't preach another gospel. So as we go through this, I have got to be very careful, and we've got to be very careful as we hear it, not to believe something more than that. So the book of James kind of can be controversial. Um, It has been described as a straw epistle, an epistle of straw by some. But it's a very interesting uh, epistle, one which has got a lot to say to us as Christian believers. In describing faith without works, Henry Spence Jones, he was a, a kind of Anglican commentator, he describes it in this way. Faith without works is the hollowness of profession without practice. Mere orthodox creed without the deeds of love, which are the fruits by which a tree is known. And if you go back into the book of Revelation, you'll find that there is something said there to the church, which is very interesting with regard to what we're saying this morning. Uh, early on, uh, as, as the Apostle John is delivering his letter from Jesus to the seven churches, he's, his letter comes to Antioch, and it's the kind of antithesis to what's being said here in the book of James. And we see that good works are encouraged by Jesus, but are interrupted by love Uh, a lack of love for the Lord. And it says here in Revelation 2, I know your works. It's Jesus speaking to the church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so our love for Christ and our living out of our salvation, goes together. And Jesus commends that in the book of Revelation, although love for him is central to all of that. In John chapter 13, verse 12 and following, Jesus says this, and it's written, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet, referring to serving one another in one way or another. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. For you. Verily, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, yes, we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here it is, he, Jesus himself, who is saying that there is something to do as well as believe. And so, as we come to verse 14 uh, of this chapter, chapter 2 of James, it asks us the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, the problem we have is that Paul seems to say in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so if we stop there, we're in trouble because it looks like these two scriptures are fighting with one another. But if we read on in Ephesians uh, 2 uh, on to verse 10, it says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in, in advance for us to do. And in other words, we don't just do something to earn good for ourselves, credit, brownie points, or whatever way you want to put it, but we are led and directed by our master, who is Christ Jesus, into what he wants us to be involved in. And so our salvation comes first, but these works need to follow what our salvation brings to us. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us any more than he does already. There is nothing we can do to make God love us any less than he does already. And so we need to be aware of that. So we can't do something to get credit in God's eyes. He loves us no matter our situation and circumstance. And so it's always dangerous to read the Bible either out of context or in part only. Uh, so we are saved, but not saved by good works, but for good works. And that's something we need to be abundantly clear about. Moving on to verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> it's talking about someone who hasn't got everything they need for their daily needs. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, the things they needed for their body, well, what good is that? That's a very good question. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so we have an example here given to us of how faith needs action to be fulfilled. Or you don't have anything to eat or something to wear in cold weather. Well, just have faith, brother. <laughs> just have faith. It'll be fine. Sorry, mate. You don't have enough faith if you didn't get what you are seeking. You don't have enough faith. Well, the question is, who doesn't have enough faith? The question is, is it not the one who ought to be helping and providing for the one who struggles to provide for themselves? The poor in our society, the poor in the church, our brothers and sisters who struggle, perhaps those of us who have more would be 
describing and displaying, should I say, our faith if we were to help them in their time of need rather than just tell them that they ought to have more faith. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verse 25, uh, Jesus says, Do not worry about what you will eat and what you will wear. (laughs) He's covering both men and women there. Do you realize that? Men are always thinking, well, what am I going to eat? (laughs) And you know what it's like when you go into a wedding, what am I going to wear? You ladies. Sorry to be so discriminatory this morning. But Jesus is saying something that is important for us to hear. Is Jesus saying that we need to provide for others? Well, maybe he's saying that we need to be part of God's economy. Maybe he's saying that we need to allow God to use us to give in these circumstances. Yes, he's calling us to have faith, but we're not permitted to walk away from those that are needy. In terms of giving, it's a very clear part and very well taught throughout Scripture that giving is very much part of our Christian walk. And there's, someone once said this to me, and I thought it was a very good balance. And you may criticize it, you may challenge it, but someone once said to me, if, if God were to multiply your giving by 10 and give it to you as a salary, would you be happy? <laughs> it's a very good question. If God was to take your giving and multiply it by 10 and give it back to you as a salary, would you be happy? How many times would you have to multiply your giving? to make you happy. And so, our giving is part of the, the, the works that God has called us to uh, in Christ. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works or action, as the NIV says, is dead. As a body without a spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. Uh, We can refer back to here also Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, where uh, Jesus uh, confronts a fig tree. Do you remember the story of the fig tree which had no figs on it? Verse uh, verse 12, I think it is, of Mark 11. And uh, it says there, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. Well, what do you expect? What do you expect? Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And later on, uh, we discover that the fig tree had withered. But what's going on here? What what is this challenge that Jesus is bringing to us here? Well, we can find a little bit of the answer, I think, in 2 Timothy, where it says this in chapter 4. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Timothy um, is instructing us here to be instant or to be ready Be prepared in season and out of season. So here is a fig tree. A fig tree, a normal fig tree. It wasn't expected 
to have any figs in the season for no figs. Well, nobody would expect anything. So why did Jesus expect figs? Well, can you imagine the creator of all the universe comes and stands before you? One day it's going to happen. We're going to come before the creator of all the universe. And he's going to say, where is the fruit? Where are the figs that I asked for? And it comes before this fig tree and there are none. And he's describing the situation, the state of Israel, uh, the church of Israel, if you like, what they were like. They were all leaves and no fruit. And of course, that same message comes to us. Are we like that? Are we a people who have got a great look about us, plenty of flush of leaves, but actually nothing to show for it? But he tells us here that we've got to be ready and prepared in season and out of season. Well, what is in season for us as Christian believers? Well, probably when things are going well. In season is when you've got money in the bank, everybody's happy in your household, nobody's sick, all sorts of good things are happening. That's probably in season. Well, we all can come and, and hey, hallelujah, we can pray and rejoice on these days. But when the challenges come, when someone is sick or when we haven't enough money to see the month out, January can kind of be like that, can it? When it's all going horribly wrong somehow, well, it's kind of like out of season. We don't expect to be rejoicing in these days. But here it's calling us to be prepared in season and out of season, to be ready to bring correction, to bring rebuke, encouragement, with great patience and careful instruction, even on the days when it ain't going well. And so we're asked to bear fruit then as well. John 13 says this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. An obvious sign of knowing Jesus and following him that we have love one for another. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love this phrase. It says, against such things, there is no law. There are all sorts of things you can over-exceed. If you go faster than the speed limit, you're breaking the law. If you try to take too much money from your employer, you're probably breaking the law. But it says here you can be as loving as you like, as joyful as you like, as peaceful as you like, as forbearing as you like, as kind as you like, etc. And against such things there is no law. You can't do too much of it. And so we're called here to serve God in such a way, showing fruit of the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another to envy. Verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So you can't demonstrate your faith in any other way but through action. You see, a lot of people try to, and if you look at the the God channel, please don't, but but if you were to look at the God channel, I've seen it, and uh, it's almost like uh, you have to have faith in your faith. You have to enlarge your faith, therefore you can be a bigger faithful person and powerful person in Christ. But that's not what it's asking us to do here. It's saying the way to demonstrate your faith is through serving God in whatever way he would call us to serve. Not by sitting back and just having a ticket for heaven in our pocket, but by serving the living God. So the only way to prove that you have faith is by the works that God has called us to. Verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I'm so delighted that they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So what he's saying here is that sometimes we spiritualize our faith and we need to practicalize, if that's a, that's a word I'm just going to coin it right now. We need to practicalize our faith. In other words, make it a practical thing, not just something that we believe and sit back in. Verses 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? It's another example of faith in action. If you want to read that story, it's an astounding story and something that is a, a precursor to, of course, Christ and the sacrifice that was made by the Father uh, for us. Was not our Abraham, uh, Father Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? His faith was perfected by his action. So he believed first and then he acted. And the problem is that liberalism tells us that we need to do all the practical stuff first and maybe then we'll be able to get credit with God but that's not the way that it works we already have credit with God through Christ and believing in in him and grasping hold of him he brings us to a place where we can serve so Abraham's faith was perfected by his action you see that Faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. How do we know that he believed God? He did what God told him to do. He was involved in that truth. Verses 24 and 25. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them off by another way? Rahab was justified by works. Having had faith in God's promise given by the servants of God, she acted. Our faith 
that a, a bus can take us from here to the city centre is useless unless we actually get on the bus. It won't take us to our destination unless we act upon the faith that we have. So we are not justified by works alone. We are justified by faith alone and works of righteousness will follow. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so we can see that this scripture, if we were to take it and read it on its own, it may well be confusing. But if we read it in line with the rest of the Word of God, it begins to fall into line, if you like, with the rest of the Word of God. So James is refuting the belief that a person can have faith without producing any good works. James is emphasizing the point that genuine faith in Christ will produce a changed life and good works. James is not saying that justification by faith plus works, but rather that a person who is truly justified by faith will have good works in his or her life. If a person claims to be a believer but has no good works in his or her life, then he or she likely does not have a genuine faith. Now, there's the big challenge. Is our faith genuine? Is our faith genuine? Then if it is, we will see the works of God working through our lives. This great salvation is outworked in obedience to God's call to serve him, to serve his people, and to serve the world. Does our faith in him bring us to a place of believing only or to a place of service? Isaiah 64 verse 5 says this, Our righteousness, our righteousness, is as filthy rags. That thing that we can try to produce on our own, it won't work. But through Christ, we are covered over with a robe of righteousness that allows us to serve him. And so our prayer is that the Lord would help us as we accept by faith his great salvation and seek to serve him by doing the works he's called us to do. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your grace and your favor. We thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you for your gift to us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is not only for us, but for the whole world. And many as yet don't know that. We pray that you'd help us as we put our trust and our faith in him, that he would lead us into the works that he has called us to do. Help us, Lord, because sometimes we need your word, we need to be pointed in a particular direction. So help us as we read it, as we hear it preached, as we hear your spirit encourage us and lead us, that we might be able to serve you with our lives, that we serve you in our generation as David did, 
that we serve you now and that we glorify the name of our Lord Jesus as a result. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.